0: This is a special feature of Radioplasma, celebrating June, Immigrant Heritage Month. This is the recording of an event hosted by Mayor Alex Morse, the Wisteria Hearst Museum and Heritage State Park Visitor Center. Journey's Home, Perspectives on Immigration This event gathered professionals from the Pioneer Valley, offering their insights into the current rhetoric and events around immigration. The participants on this panel were Attorney Megan Klott, an immigration lawyer from Curranenberger LLP in Northampton; Professor Raul Gutierrez, local professor of Spanish at Holyoke Community College Marie-Claire Tonsmeyer, manager at the Wayfinder's office in Holyoke and honoree of Immigrant Heritage Month and Eduardo Samaniego, a dreamer and immigrant advocate attending Hampshire College and working for the Pioneer Valley Worker Center in Northampton. This is Journey's Home, Perspectives on Immigration. Thank you, Heather, and welcome, everyone, and thank you for being here. This is an important celebration that shows the diversity and the effort of different cultures and communities making a new one, making a bigger one and a great one that is our community here in the city of Holyoke. Uh, I want to acknowledge also the presence of our mayor, Alex Morse. Thank you for being here. And one of the most important aspects of immigration is to understand what immigration is by definition I believe this could be our first topic to cover from the perspective of each one of our guests in in this panel. So I would like to offer that that option uh, for whoever wants to start. What do you understand by immigration?
1: So for me, immigration is something that was personal, because when I immigrated when I was 11 from Mexico, and I moved to Chicago. And my understanding of immigration was me moving to a foreign country, even though it wasn't really foreign, because I moved to Pilsen, which is majority Mexican-American community. That's all Mexicans. We spoke Spanish to each other constantly. And that was my experience till college. And uh, when I went to college, it was the first encounter with people from different different diversities and various backgrounds. And that's when I learned the theoretical Framework of immigration. I didn't understand why I had to move from Mexico to Chicago, from, uh, from Mexico to Chicago, as a child. Uh, but once I got to college and started taking courses in Latino studies and other areas, I was able to understand, like, oh, that's why I came here, or this is why we lost the house, or so on and so forth, and the understanding of that. But immigration for me is. Kind of, uh, it's the movement of people, obviously, but it's also the movement of people, even within your own life. For me, another border was going to college. I was the first in my family to go to college. So that was also a, a migratory experience for me. But for me, immigration, it was something that my parents did, my grandparents did, I did. And obviously, my experience was a lot easier than my grandparents and parents. Uh, but I think immigration, for me, is a way of life. And it's natural. It's not unnatural or anything else that we see currently, that immigration is something that should be stopped. It's, immigration is just the way that the US and many countries work through uh, their, the course of their, basically, of becoming countries and stuff like that. So yeah. Well, sure. I'm.
2: I'm- not a first-generation immigrant myself. So just from the perspective of an immigration attorney, what it means to me is anyone who has chosen to give up their initial country where they were born and locate to a new place and take on a new home and a new country and a new set of values. So for me, it, I don't, when I think of immigration, I don't think about US citizens. I don't, I don't think as much about the children of immigrants and the people who've come and been through these experiences, because in my work, What I'm focusing on and who I'm directly helping are the people who have made this choice at that initial level. So, And sometimes it's for work, because they are able to fulfill their career dreams in the United States. Sometimes they're fleeing persecution, so they feel that they cannot stay in their home country as much as they would love to. Um, Sometimes it's for family reasons. They come here, and they fall in love. Or sometimes they want to start a business. Sometimes they want to become an actor and stay here, and so there's a lot of different reasons. But for me, as an immigration attorney, that's where it intersects with me the most: is when the people make that decision and choose to give up their life before and reestablish a new set of values here. That's that's my intersection with it.
3: Eduardo, uh, yes, um, I'll say that um, just like everyone else, you know, I, for one, you know, my immigration is the movement of people right across. Lanes that we've created, but um, I feel like the most important thing is that you know why is people moving? You know, like um, as she was just mentioning, you know, the reasons behind why people have to either have to leave their country or they decide, you know, uh, to make that decision, or even sometimes they don't make the decision. Right? It's like an overtime uh, um, and over time, you know, series of situations that leads them. To leave their country, so I feel like for me that was that was one of the reasons behind of what immigration has meant for me. That you know my family couldn't provide uh, because they were farmers their entire life for generations, and uh, you know we had uh, we grew uh, crops, you know uh, uh, all kinds of grains, uh, 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 what is it, uh, beans, uh, wheat. Um, all of those things, and after the NAFTA agreement, um, you know, my, my grandparents could never uh, live on the same at uh, the same with the same standards uh, that, that they did before, and so you know I, that meant that I couldn't go to college. That you know we barely before it was it was uh, the, a place where um, we were in a much better economic status, but then you know little by little it was you know we were my family was only making ends meet. Right. Uh, so and they were working so hard, uh, but because of you know different like subsidized you know things that you know now they could never compete with those those uh, um, uh, companies that, that had you know like that were getting you know their, their products from like uh, other other countries so much cheaper um, than we could offer them. So uh, for me, I feel like that was you know there was a series of events that led to me. You no know, wanting to migrate to the United States, and I migrated. I came here legally, too, and uh, you know, eventually I, I lost my status. And even though I tried so hard to to fix my status and and uh, to to do things, you know, the right way, quote unquote, um, there was no way for me to do that. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's the series of of events, you know, behind you know the reason. The decision of migrating or, or migration is, is so so unique to every every person. So, for me, it was largely because I wanted to go to college, and so Massachusetts was the place eventually. So,
4: yeah. so for me, um, this is Marie Claire. Um, what I can share about um, migration or immigration is that. I come from a large, a um, long line of immigrants. Some of my family descendants from South Spain, Mexico. You know, part of it Mayan as well. So Mayans tend to migrate all over, and they did. And um, so it's a long line of that. And and personally, when I came here. Back in 2001 was actually right after 9/11, um, and um, my coworkers at Hefron International, they knew I was coming for three months to um, to the learning center, and they said, "Why are you going? This is so dangerous right now." And I said, That's awesome. "I'm not scared, you know. Well, if something's going to happen to me, it's going to happen anywhere." Um, so that's the reason why I came. I came only for three months and then it got extended to another three months and then I got a, a work visa through Heifer International as well. Um, but for me, what it means is um, sometimes it's a choice, sometimes it's not a choice. In my case, it was sort of a choice. I, c- I could have made the decision of not staying and, and work for, for International. But uh, what I understand from the people that we worked with in the highlands in Guatemala is that it was not a choice for them to migrate. Um, there are um, mining companies that come and take over their land. And, and as um, uh, Eduardo was saying, now their livelihood has, ch- has changed. They cannot use the water, or they don't have even land to leave because they take over and and they have to move. So that whether migrating to Guatemala City, where they can sell peanuts or candy or work for somebody else, or finding some other income or moving to another country, which could be south or north. So that's what it means for me.
0: Like Marie-Claire mentioned, it's clear that the events of September 11, 2001 changed the history and the way immigration worked in not only united states but the whole world because the perspective of safety and the different perspectives of who is the one that i need to be careful about started to create more of this misconception and prejudice about different communities and different migrations that having existed for many many years my question for all of you will be What is your perspective, not only after 9-11, but how this also changed once again in 2016 when our current president was elected?
4: That's a tough question. (laughs) Um, uh, For me, I know that um, I was in the highlands of Guatemala when uh, 9-11 happened. I remember exactly where I was. I had a group of visitors from from the US, from different states. And uh, for, for, for us, what it meant was evacuation. We needed to take them out of the communities and bring them into safety in, to the closest city right away. And I remember clearly the president saying, um, at the time, saying, if you're not with us, you're against us. So that changed the whole the whole perspective and the whole view and in all the and you know, all the visitors that we had as, a, as a Heifer International at the time, but also in the country, because now everybody had to rush from wherever you are. And remember, Guatemala is right in Central America. We got a lot of Spanish schools, and a lot of people come from all over the world. So um, it, it, was, uh, it was shocking to see what was happening. Of course, we were saddened to see what was happening, too. Um, but that delayed, besides delaying um, flights, people trying to get out of there as soon as possible to Guatemala City, the airport and whatnot. Um, So that was one wave of change. Now in 2016, uh, my community was very saddened. Um, We felt rejected. Uh, We felt, you know, of course, you know, the words that they were using to to say, because I am from Guatemala, but in the eyes of so many people, I am Mexican. All of us looked like Mexicans, you know, and, and that was the word that the, the, that he was using. you know He was not saying people from from specific countries, he just said Mexicans, so all of us, regardless of <laughs> who we were coming from, we were all Mexicans so um, it, it was hard. I had many people um, saying you know i i 'm going to leave i, I don 't feel welcome anymore um, many people um, you know, I have a strong accent. Other people f- were discriminated against. And also, you know, when applying for jobs, I even had to change my name. Um, it was easier for me to find a job that way. Um, so taking out the hit on in the middle um, and taking out some pieces of activism that I've done in the past um, helped me find a job as well. So you know, hit on. In, in, Marie-Claire Hiron Tonsmeyer, so I Marie-Claire Tonsmeyer. So that gave a different phase. And you know, with your resumes, you don't have to put a picture anymore. In the past, we, we, we used to, at least in Guatemala. But um, it changed a lot. I want to give so, some of you time to. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well with, with that question, what I think about
2: most is what happened from a legal perspective, because there were tremendous um, ripple effects that that we're still feeling from from September 11th. I mean, first of all, the immigration agencies were completely changed. The Department of Homeland Security was created. They used to have the INS. People still call it the INS. That disappeared. It's USCIS now. So everything was changed around. All this new focus was around border security and just so much change. It was really a sea change in the way many of immigration agencies handled everything. Um, prior to, in April 30th, 20, 2001, there was a sunset of, nobody really called it an amnesty, but there was a provision, so some people that were undocumented could pay a $1,000 penalty fee if they wanted to legalize, and that was actually really great for, and you had to have a basis, it had to be family-based, it had to be employer-based, and so you could do that. It was really great uh, for the immigrants, and it was also really great. It was a great source of of money, you know, for the U.S. government. And there was at that time this un- this understanding or thought that maybe that would be reactivated because it had done so well. It sunset on April 30th, but that was completely out of the question uh, after September 11th happened. So we base until September 11th, we tended to see some sort of major immigration legislation or change every five years or so. Since then, there has been almost absolutely nothing. I mean, every time a bill has tried to go through, it hasn't. And we've been stuck with the exact same immigration framework for now 16 years. And and there's just very little hope right now of of any of that changing. So so definitely, everything about the way immigration law runs. And also, they revised, for example, the student program there was this understanding that they were students, the people who came in. I was actually working as a congressional intern at the time, so I was sitting in on those congressional hearings about what happened and, and how do we go wrong. And so they completely revised the way we deal with foreign students when they come in. They changed the rules about uh, immigrants that were coming in to learn how to fly planes. Now there's all these rules about foreign nationals if even owning planes. So they, they, they can't own aircraft in some situations. So. All kinds of things about immigration law, it started around that time. So, there we have that. And as far as 2016, it's a little different because, um, you know, you, I don't know how com- comparable there are because you had 9 11, which was an outside event that happened. We were attacked, and everybody was reacting to that. And now we have a, a president who's sort of taking this new. This new attitude. So whereas before we had a terrorist attack that all the people were reacting to in, in a very fearful, negative way, now we have a president who's trying to sort of do it unilaterally and push these very anti-immigrant, these racist uh, policies. And there's a lot of yes, it's definitely triggered a lot of really disturbing rhetoric, and it's really allowed a lot of people to to come out that had been you know previously keeping their opinions to themselves, but. I've just seen this tremendous outpouring also of people wanting to help immigrants. And I feel it's kind of controversial saying this, but what struck me the most is how many just volunteers have been, have approached me since, since the election. You know, that we have all of these attorneys, local attorneys who don't do immigration law. They've maybe done criminal defense for 30 years and they've all come forward and say, how do we do immigration law? Teach us immigration law. And we actually have created a, a pro bono group. And there are all these volunteer attorneys. And we, they go to the jails, uh, the Greenfield House of Corrections, the Franklin County House of Corrections. There's immigrants housed there. We have volunteers going in every week, trying to get them out of detention, people going to immigration court that have never gone before. So it's, it's very unique. And yes, there's absolutely horrible things going on. But what I didn't expect was such a, a, an amazing um, positive reaction. And it's happening all around the country. So there's impact litigation groups springing up in all the cities. And they're all starting to talk to each other. And how do we sue the government here? And how do we sue the government there? And all these strategies. And some of these bad things were already happening. <laughs> but now uh, the reaction to it is different. So I guess just to put a little bit of a positive spin on what's been a sort of the dark ages that we're in right now, I've never seen all these agencies you know, nonprofits and volunteers and attorneys and all these communities coming together like this. So yes, yeah, so I guess I, that's why I don't see them as totally parallel, because now the people are angry at the president. They don't feel as afraid as he'd like to make them feel. Whereas after September 11, people did feel afraid. So that was actually more complicated in a way than this. Um.
3: Well, for me, I, I, um, I, was, I was absent in 9-11. I was still in Mexico. I came here in 2009. And so I didn't experience the immediate aftermath of, of, of the uh, terrorist attacks. Um, but I do experience now on a daily basis you know, the laws that have been changed and the rhetoric around immigration and who is, is you know, uh, dangerous and who is not today as an undocumented immigrant. Um, but um, you know, I think that um, I I could add very little to, to the um, kind of like uh, the policy and, and the legal framework um, after what you shared. Um, but one of the things that really I think goes unnoticed to people is that you know just like there's been, there has been good, bad you know uh, events you know or terrible events in the United States, there's also been great events that send a message to to the world. And to me, you know, why is it that I came in 2009? I came here because of the election of Barack Obama. And I think that I was a very naive boy, and I was, I was childish, and I believed in, in, in the rhetoric of what was the American dream. And, and I feel like by now, you know, we're all very severed up on, on, on the American dream and, and the rhetoric of this. But back then, you know as someone who lived in a farm in, in the middle of, of a very rural town in, of Mexico, um, watching, you know, Barack Obama getting elected, the first African-American president of the United States, that sent a message to me through the TV, and that's why I wanted to come to the United States, and so that's that's what really triggered a lot of of things that that eventually would lead my family to gather all their money and and save up, you know, for the next, you know. Uh, two years almost, and then eventually getting a visa for me so I could come and study here. Um, I eventually um, you know, went on to, to, um, to, became, to become homeless, actually, after coming to the United States, uh, after my, my uncle, who was taking care of me, was deported. Um, and so I ended up living with a pastor from church, and then he supported me through my last year of high school. In my last year of high school I graduated as student body president, you know, student body president and, and president of about four other, you know, clubs in high school. And to me, um, that was the American dream. You know, that was that was what the thing that, that brought me to the United States and I know that this was a very individual story. This was not the story of the eleven million undocumented immigrants living in the United States. But that was my story at that point, and then. Um, but then that's when I started realizing. You know, I remember I, I saved money and I brought my mother from Mexico to watch me graduate, and I was sitting on stage next to my principal the day of the graduation, and so I think that sometimes because I think honestly we become so hypocritical and and so. Um, there are so many situations that take away the hope and, and the, the better version of, of, of you know, this country um, that we forget those stories, right? Um, but that was, that was my story at that point. But I, I think that's when everything began to, to hit me, you know, when, when my visa expired and I couldn't renew it. And uh, it was so hard to renew it. And I, was, I, I thought, why? Why, why? And, and you know, it, it was just a thing that you could never explain, because how do you explain immigration law to a 17-year-old who's just been here for a year and a half? Right? And so I couldn't understand why, and so especially when I, when I didn't have any family in the United States. And then uh, the state of Georgia uh, on its own has uh, very negative and backtracking policies when it comes to undocumented students accessing a you know, college, college education. So, because I was undocumented i couldn 't apply to colleges in the state of Georgia, even though my my track record was almost all straight A's so that 's when they started to hit me all these policies policy four point one point six which effectively prohibits undocumented immigrants in the state of Georgia from going to college and uh, then there goes policy four point one point three which prohibits undocumented immigrants from applying in state tuition, even though even it doesn't matter if they lived there their entire lives and they paid taxes and their parents have paid taxes for decades. You can't get uh, state financial aid. You can't get federal financial aid. You can't apply for FAFSA. And those are the things that I started realizing as I was applying for college. And then eventually it came, um, I graduated, and in 2013 I remember there was a very big push for immigration reform. And where the Senate passed immigration reform by the immigration reform bill by 68 votes. Uh, and then it went on to the House of Representatives. And I remember that that's the first time I was actually put on the front of the fight for immigration reform. And I, and I learned and I met all these people that were, had been fighting for decades. And that was the, the moment where I woke up to. Everything that that was wrong and that is wrong with our immigration system today—that you know, the overwhelming majority of of, of U.S. citizens, you know, at times 73 percent of U.S. citizens supported some form of um, some form of immigration reform—but this, at the time, John Boehner couldn't even bring that the bill to the floor, and so to me, that, that was that was something that I could not still grasp fully. And that it would take on until 2014, when after all this activism, I ended up applying to Hampshire College in here in Massachusetts, and they offered me a full ride scholarship to come here. And then that's when I, I started learning about this, you know, uh, larger context of of foreign policy in other countries, NAFTA, you know, all the coups across, you know, uh, South America, and and you know, eventually. All these policies that prohibit undocumented immigrants from going to college, and so on and so forth. But, um, and then you know, up until then, last year when Trump was elected president, um, to me that was that was that was unreal because I still hold a lot of a lot of the good feelings for this country. I think that a lot of my friends have lost a lot of of. Um, Optimism, you know, uh, of hope, after seeing the rhetoric, you know, throughout the campaign trail and, and so many other events. Uh, but I've always, you know, because I got to see the, the the best looking side of this country. I always hang on to it, and and so when I saw, you know, the rhetoric and then eventually Donald Trump being elected, and I was actually at at the Democratic National Convention, on on front row next to the senators from New York. When Hillary Clinton accepted the nomination uh, to become the Democratic leader uh, to run for president. And I was there as an undocumented immigrant, you know. And, and I thought, how many other undocumented immigrants are here on Front Row after only uh, seven years, you know, in the United States? And, and that's what I always go back to. You know, I go back to, yes, both, you know, policy, but also um, the reality that, that is so much larger. Um, you know uh feelings and emotions and and everything and and I think that all of that it's it's been has been become very very real uh with with the election of donald trump and now you know um, i- feel, i feel like as an activist who's who's been on the line who's gone to jail protesting you know um some of the of the worst policies um in georgia i i think that you know now more than ever, I see the the, uh, the hate and the, the the anti-immigrant rhetoric across you know uh, people's minds. But I also see you know the pouring of support and the overwhelming um, you know feeling of 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 now is the time to do something. The energy coming from U.S. citizens and you know. Um, Immigrants and, and you know so many people that had never been in, invested in, in you know in anything that had to do with immigration and I'm just excited and you know tomorrow I start with the Pioneer Valley Worker Center and I'm just excited to to contribute to, to this fight and, and continue this fight that I, n- I know won't end with Donald Trump because they didn't start with him and um, but you know I, I just I'm looking forward to to what's coming you know the good stuff of
2: course. <laughs> My parents in their 60s have never been to a protest in their life. And this year, they came out and protested with a big Not My President sign. I couldn't even believe it. I was, I was like, I can't believe this is happening right now. <laughs> but there's so many first-time activists, so many people who have never even considered activism who are jumping in right now. You know, everybody, everybody's starting to think like, what can I do? And I know we're in a very privileged area right now. It's not representative of the country, but it's, but it's still worth noting. And, and, you know, so there's, there's hope. Like the, the better side of the country is here, mm-hmm. it's here. <laughs> it's, you know, just two <coughs> sides
0: the point.
1: Uh, So for me, 9-11 was the first time that I felt a part of this country for me as an immigrant. I arrived in 1987, so I never felt fully American or fully part of the country because I grew up mostly speaking Spanish or feeling foreign, even though I fit in because of my phenotype. But for other purposes, I didn't. So I remember very clearly that for me it was the first time that I said, "How could this happen to my country?" And being naive, I Didn't understand that it was uh, more complicated than just being attacked. After that, I think uh, the conflation of terrorists with immigrant—that's when it happened. Even though it was prior to that, and especially the attack on the border and the southern border regarding the militarization of the border that started in the 90s, but it got way worse after 9/11. But for me, when Donald Trump won, it uh, was—I think. I remember very clearly going to drop off my son in and, and school and seeing all the parents have this face that like, someone had died in their family. I remember very clearly that. And I felt the same way, but it hit home. When he said Mexicans, I'm Mexican. My parents are Mexicans. When he said criminals, none of my family are criminals that I'm aware of. Uh, And then I remember talking to friends and other people and family members. And he said, you're going to be fine. You're an American citizen. He's not going to do anything to you. And And I kept mulling that over. And I worked with undocumented mothers. And in September, when we returned for classes, I was giving the class. And I think the first 45 minutes of the class was us debriefing these mothers that work in the fields in this area. They're undocumented talking about how to plan if they get deported and what are they going to do to, with their children. For me, that was heartbreaking to be able to, like, like, what could I say? And I remember very clearly saying, this is not about m- me. And I went, not to my first process, but like to several of them. <laughs> but it was, for me, it was said an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And I remember clearly trying to explain that to family members that were like, "But just it, oh, it'll blow over. He can't do that. He won't do that." And I said, "But the fact that he's saying it, it's emboldening people to actually say things. Like, I don't doubt that people have thought that before, but I, the actual fact that he goes on Twitter or says things to incredible things that you think at the start were funny to some people because they were never, never funny to me." But it was, it was heartbreaking. And I remember that I said, and I told the mothers, I said, I know that my kids and myself, theoretically, we, we will be fine, because my kids are Amer- American citizens. I'm an American citizen. But it doesn't matter if we're, if we're fine. And I remember I told them, anything I can do for you, I'll do. And it was, even though that I know that, if. I can do as much as I can, but still, how do you control someone that has that much power? It was, I went home, and like, uh, I had students at HCC that are also undocumented. They're DACA recipients. And they're actively participating in protests and doing all these things. And I re- remember saying, uh, thinking about them prior to the election, actually at 1230 at midnight when I, Hillary started to lose everything. I was thinking about my, one of my students, and I said, what's going to happen to her? That was immediate. I didn't think like, oh, Raul, you were going to get deported. Because Raul might be thrown in jail, but I don't know if I could be deported anymore. But it became this kind of like thinking of other people. What, what's going to happen to my sister that she lives in Texas? What's going to happen to my sister that lives right in the border in Laredo? So it became kind of like all these other people that I was thinking about trying to like think, like, what's going to happen? And that was the main thing. And then after that, it became, what are we going to do about it? And that's where we're at now. And I, I do agree, I was lucky to take students from the Lisa Club, which is the Latino International Student Association from HCC to the Women's March. So we drove from Holyoke all the way to Washington DC in a, in a van. It was two male profes- two professors that were both male and all 20-year-old women, and we were like, you, and they're like, if you want to go have a drink, go have Like they were old enough to like if you want to go out, go out. We're like old. We're going to go and sit in our room and look at each other. So and then we went to the march, and it was spectacular to see them like feeling like a part of it. It was a little overwhelming at first for them because there were like so many people. And I said, don't worry, we'll start marching soon. But it was, it was, it was great, and they were like, I never been in Washington, can we go see the uh, MLK Memorial? And I said sure, and we were exhausted by then. It was 8:30, and I was like, okay, let's take a walk. And I've been in Washington one time before, and I was like, I was a tour guide, so I think it's that way. So like, we're walking about, and <laughs> and eventually we 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 did it, and I I never felt so proud of just people in general, like like at that time, like, and I've been in the immigrant marches, like. Uh, the the original one in Chicago and L.A. that were like a lot of people, so it became kind of like, we gotta start doing that again. And I think that's what's happening.
0: Like Adoro said, being an immigrant and having these experiences right now, it keeps the hope alive. It's possibly the only way that we can continue doing what we have to do. And that is also to have a community engage and keep it together as as a family, because now we are part of this big family that is the United States. And with this, I think of how much immigrants contribute to this country, especially because even during the most adverse times and situations, we come from places that have experienced wars, where poverty, where austerity, where lack of opportunities, where lack of freedom is the order of the day. And we are lucky enough to be in a country that still provides opportunities, freedom, and hope. And that's why we're here, not only pursuing those dreams, but also to share it and to make other people be successful. And this is certainly proof. On our panelists because Eduardo is an activist and an immigrant rights and child student advocate. He's fighting for everyone who is struggling with this adversity of being undocumented and not recognized and not being supported. On the other hand, Raul also has an, a very inspiring project with his Planting Literacy that combines the language and food as a way to connect and bring the community together. Marie-Claire, not only through Wayfinders, but also through her commitment with the community, reaching out and being always that energy, that extra energy that makes many things happen. And also connected with, with the land, with the food, as another way to, to engage with the community. Megan, working with different cases in immigration law that not only involves immigrants and their cases, but also working with cultural affairs, with education, with commerce, with different aspects that makes the immigration in all of the different aspects to exist, to work, to be effective, to, to stay active. So what can you share with us a little bit about those projects and those things that you do that I will say These are the real things that make America great.
1: Well, the Planting Literacy Project is a project that we do with Head Start and uh, the greater Springfield area. And it's uh, literacy classes for uh, migrant mothers. Well, it's migrant workers, but none of the fathers have showed up. It's only women. So um, we offer literacy courses. Well, actually, I teach the literacy courses, because they were unfortunately unable to learn Spanish, uh, how to read or write in uh, Spanish in Guatemala and in southern Mexico. The majority of them are from Guatemala, and there's like 90% of them. So we've been doing this project for two years. This is our second year. We started with 20 mothers, which the majority of them continued in the second year. But the majority moved on to ESL. So we are offering ESL and um, Spanish. Um, And it's the most gratifying work that I, I love my HCC students and I love teaching in college, but it's the most gratifying work that I've done. Um, Most uh, all the people that work with us are volunteers. Uh, It starts at 6 and we have dinner from 6 to 6.30 and we all talk about What we did at work, why I forced them to talk about what they did at work, I talk about what I did at work. And then after that, we start class, and the class is an hour and 30 minutes. Um, Most of them work well, actually, all of them work in agriculture, in different sectors of agriculture. All of them are undocumented. And through Head Start, they participate in the Migrant Head Start Program, which is a program that offers Head Start classes to children of migrant. Or far, um, migrant farmers, and they have seasonal migrant farmers that come and then go, and then go to warmer weather in the winter. Um, and I remember that we just ended last two, a week and a half, over two weeks ago. And for the summer, because summer is almost impossible for them to show for the classes because they work all day. Uh, so I remember very clearly talking to them at the end and. We did a little presentation. They got diplomas, and it was like this is the first time they had a diploma. They were really excited, and I remember telling uh, one of them said in in Spanish, she said, "Thank you for teaching us what you teach us," and I told her in Spanish, "Whatever you I can teach you means nothing to what what you teach me," Cause it, like. I remember getting there on Tuesday nights and I'm tired because I teach three classes and then I go and do other stuff at the the college and I would sit and I'd be like so exhausted like running on pure coffee and then I would see them and I would say okay let's turn it on and I would turn it on and I would say like how can I complain and uh, my, my volunteers do a lot of the work. One of the volunteers is a DACA student that works with me, and then the other volunteers are two retirees. One of them lives in Holyoke, and she's really active here, and another is a 77-year-old CSL teacher. She said, I need something to do. i was like, well, you can teach ESL. Are you in? So she said yes. So that's basically what we're doing. They learned how to make lasagna this, this semester, because they, they were like, I want to learn how to make lasagna. And I was like, OK, so we'll try to find some money to get you lasagna and teach you how to do it. And so we did that. And it was it, that's what makes America great, because they were like learning something that they thought it was very American, which is lasagna. And they were like, I'm going to go make it to my ki- for my kids. And then they came with the stories the next week, which was pretty, it was really beautiful.
4: Um, lasagna is not very typical in Guatemala, we know. <laughs> 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 tortillas, tortillas are more. <laughs> So um, with, uh, I think I can take it back a little bit when I decided to come and I was uh, invited to come to the learning centers, one of the lear- learning centers with Heifer International, which is uh, in near Worcester um, in a town called Rutland. So a lot of people <coughs> come from congregations and schools from all over. Um, to learn about hunger and poverty. They have a global village, including a house that represents Guatemala. So um, they invited me to come over to talk about the projects we had in, in Guatemala. Um, the office that, we were, that I was working at in Guatemala ran the projects in Central America and also the Dominican Republic in Haiti. So um, I was fortunate enough to work with the farmers and visit the projects, develop some programs for for literacy and gender, gender studies uh, in the highlands of Guatemala, with people that couldn't read and write either. <laughs> you know, in Guatemala we have several Mayan languages. There used to be 50, maybe about around 23 are left at this point. Um, so, I came to that learning center. Um, Developed several programs for the Guatemala House and helped with uh, the Peruvian site and other places. Do some research. I was the only person that spoke Spanish at the time, um, one of the staffs uh, there. Um, So my journey coming here and sharing what I knew about my world and and other cultures started there. Um, by teaching people how to make tortillas, what it meant, you know, what's a peasant meal really? Because we don't use the lime in the in the dough, you know, for example. <laughs> and no, it's not limon; it's limestone. You know, so um, talking about that and um, and coffee and and teas and chocolate and fair trade and all of that and how you prepare yourself to travel for the first time to. Uh, developing countries such as Guatemala, uh, so that and um, and then um, in 2007 after I got married, um, coming into town and learning more about what uh, Nuestra Raíces does and, and we had that connection because they wa- they wanted to to apply for some animals some uh, farm animals from Heifer International, so I had some a little bit of the cultural agricultural background as well, but not as much as they do and, and as much as my husband actually does. So um, volunteer with them, interpreting and, and doing even some of the veterinary trainings or interpretations for from staff that came from Nepal, even came uh, and staff from Nepal, have for Nepal came to the farm and, and taught them more about Famacha and other things, how to check for animal health and stuff. So and then uh, when I was working for my on uh, my master's degree, I was able to to um, provide some uh, feedback about their finance. Uh, situation their financial situation and give them some some um some um, some not solutions but uh, some perspectives on how to improve and what other connections to make uh, because of my background in fundraising and stuff and now with wayfinders wayfinders is a housing organization used to be called HAP Housing, but we do more than housing, more than finding apartments, more than you know, teaching people how to or, or helping people buy their homes, teaching them finan- financial education from how to start a budget, how to improve your credit. And actually, there are counselors there that can meet with each one of the participants, and they will follow up with them as well. So. Um, With that, I feel i met several people, Um, not only... I haven't met many people from Guatemala, so you're very fortunate. I want to meet them. (laughs) I know a few Guatemalans in town, but not that many. Um, But I have met many people in this town that cannot read and write. Um, So, we work with them. In fact, uh, one of the programs that we run with uh, Wayfinders is called Resident Leadership Program, and that is to develop skills uh, on leadership. So people learn from leadership, um, conflict resolution, communication, several topics. to government 101 actually, you know, they don't even know what the website looks like. Heather came the other day <laughs> to teach uh, part of that class. To thank you again, um, but n- people come to the to our office and they don't even know who their city councilor is, for example. So we we share a lot of that information. We help them look up where what you know where exactly do they live and who they need to connect and and how to really. Um, Approach the city or when to approach the city because a lot of things you can do it, you know, with your neighbor, starting with yourself and that kind of thing. Um, but giving people the opportunity to, to access uh, services is, is good, but from my end, because I have worked with Heifer International for so long and worked for them for about 13 years, and after that, I continue to volunteer in other capacities with other, another group from. from um, New York uh, working in, in, uh, in, in another part of Guatemala with the Mayan Chorti uh, to develop, um, not to develop, but to help them um, with uh, food and, and food access and seeds uh, for, for dry areas in Guatemala. A lot of people in this part of Guatemala have died because uh, of the bad droughts. 51 kids, children back in 2006 died because of a drought. So um, that's when I I started to learn even more about uh, agriculture and how to purify water with seeds, uh, and things like that. So, um, but so making the connection with the poverty levels I've seen in the countries where heifer international has projects and seeing what I've seen in this city makes me sad. Many times, a lot of youth, many youth have come through our office, asking to. Fill out or how to fill out as an, uh, an application for Section 8. Um, and I'm thinking, these are young people. They should be dreaming about going to college, becoming doctors, or becoming lawyers or the governor, you know. But no, that's not what they're thinking. They know that because they have been in that cycle of poverty, their next step is to apply for Section 8. So connecting them to to other non-profits and opportunities in town, such as you know scholarships. There is a scholarship here. There is this this and this other place. There is hope. Basically, kind of giving them the message that no matter where you are at, there is hope, and you are in a country that has a lot of power. Just remind them that you know you live in this country, and there are opportunities. Um, so uh, this opens up. You know, Wayfinders opens up the door for so many opportunities for, for people in, in the community. And that's part of the reason why we changed our name, changed the name from Hub Housing to Wayfinders, because um, it's, there's, there are more services for the homeless and things like that as well. So, uh, where there is, a, where, where there is a, a person wanting to improve, there is a way, and we, we will find a way, one way or another. <laughs> Thank you.
2: I guess kind of following up on that same theme of, of hope and opportunities, um, the justice system here still works, as we've seen from the Ninth Circuit. We've seen in the Fourth Circuit case. It's just been awesome to be an immigration lawyer and to be able to advocate. And for, for immigrants in our community, I've worked on a lot of uh, really intense um, and upsetting uh, asylum cases for victims of domestic violence. and. Um, in Central America, I've worked with uh, people from the Middle East uh, who sometimes the government uh, tries to deny their application the first time around because they say, oh, well, you're a security risk. Or they, they say, oh, well, you know, your, your testimony this time was slightly different than your testimony that time, so we're just going to deny your case. So, but being a lawyer, being able to step into those cases and make arguments and make arguments and make arguments and, make arguments and then win and then change the tide, is a fantastic role to be in. It's just awesome. So, I mean, aside from projects, just being able to play that role as part of my job has been incredibly rewarding. Um, especially after September 11th, you, you do have a lot of um, extra security checks. And, but there's been litigation that has always pushed back on these kinds of things. So, and, and at the end of the day, most of the time, the right argument can, can win, as we saw in these in these recent cases. so to, But it doesn't happen automatically. You need the lawyers to actually provide access, because of most of the clients I work with just don't have it. So on their own, they would not have access to this great legal system that we have. They wouldn't, they would lose. They would lose their cases, a lot of them. Um, you know, we have some judges, some immigration judges, that if there's no lawyer there, they, I mean, it's really, most of them do end up in deportation a lot of the time if they're before a judge. So to be able to stand there and be a wall between that and change the judge's perspective and, and argue it is, is incredible. So it's nice to be able to provide that for lots of different immigrant groups in the community. Um, as, as far as projects, prior to Trump, the big project that I was working on is I was going down to the, the border, basically there was the surge of Central Americans in two, 2014, which was a lot of mothers with very young children coming over the border at once. Now, we talk about the Trump administration. This was under the Obama administration. And the reaction was to start detaining them. So they took over the federal law enforcement training facility in Artesia, New Mexico, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And they started with a policy of just detaining. Every time a mother came in from Central America with a child, they would detain them and put them in this facility. And at first, it was just mass deportations. They would give them a hearing, but The hearing would be by televideo. They'd be in a little trailer on a little screen with a judge off in Washington deciding their fate. And it was just fast track. And some immigration lawyers started going down there and just showing up when they heard about it and showing up at the facility and saying, well, we want to see them. We want to represent them. And then they would, ICE, who was detaining them, said, well, no, because you're not their lawyers. They said, well, we're here, and we want to represent them. They said, yeah, but they don't know who you are. So you had lawyers actually showing up at this facility trying to represent the women inside and the kids, but couldn't because there was no way to get them. They couldn't know that there were lawyers on the outside trying to get in to help them. So finally, basically through cards, through religious organizations that could go in, managed to start getting cards slipped in that there are lawyers outside. So at least somebody could say, this is my lawyer. They have permission to enter the facility. So that was kind of the wedge in the door. And then meanwhile, more and more people were hearing about this. I, I went down probably about the fifth week that immigration lawyers were down there. And already in that amount of time, so much had changed. By then, the immigration lawyers who were there had managed to, they were getting into the facility to see the ladies. And then even, they'd even allowed us to carve out a little section of one trailer where we could eat snacks and set up computers. And, uh, but, but it was pretty intense. So we'd show up at this facility. We would have to go through a lot of clearance. Then they'd take us in a little van through all these different trailers. And then we'd meet with, and there were, when I was there, there were about 600 people at this facility. This is women and children. So everyone had toddlers. There were babies crawling around. It was, it was just crazy. And you know, it was every week was a different rotation of lawyers, because nobody could afford to give up their practice forever. So really, every week, it was a new set of people. And it was passing the torch. So I was there for 10 days, and uh, one of the days I was there, there were three lawyers and about 19 hearings in a day. And we had like, just hundreds of clients. And all of the stories were horrific. And so since that started, and all of the judges, we would try to ask them to let the women out on bond, say, you know, they don't need to be detained. And uh, the judges were giving bond of maybe, you know, I a $20,000 bond on a child, up to $100,000 bond. It was ridiculous. And meanwhile, the government lawyers were taking the position that no amount of bond would be sufficient to secure them. If, if someone is, comes into the country and they're in deportation proceedings in court, they can be detained if they're a flight risk or a threat to the community. So their argument was that all of these women were a threat to the community because, If you go easy on them, it's going to send a message back to Guatemala and Honduras and and, uh, El Salvador that we go easy on women with young children. And if we do that, we're going to have a surge of many more women with young children. And that will compromise our security and our ability to combat terrorism. So this was their 100-page brief that they submitted in every case. So it was just a fierce battle. It was you know, everybody at that time, all the lawyers, when we were there, we were up all night, maybe two hours of sleep. We'd be in the facility meeting people all day long. And then we would write the briefs at night to try and submit them by fax like the next day to the court. And that's how it started. And then in the meantime, and then you'd, you'd pass it on. So some other lawyer would come in. But as this continued to happen, you started getting to the point where more lawyers were veterans, where more lawyers were alum than lawyers on the ground. Because maybe you had three to five lawyers on the ground, but now so many people had rotated through that we had a network all around the country that were pissed, frankly, and still wanting to fight, but couldn't go down. So we developed a network of people who we prepared a lot of the work off-site. We had all kinds of volunteers. We had vo- so I would be working one night with a volunteer in you know Minnesota, and then another volunteer in, in Los Angeles. And we would put together anything we could off-site and send it in. So it, it just became this, this incredible network. And meanwhile, a lot, there was a lot of litigation going on to try and stop it. So first, we started winning asylum cases inside which was awesome, because that showed the government that their argument that these are just economic migrants um, was BS. So they couldn't argue that anymore. Now they had to see, OK, we're actually detaining refugees. Since they're winning the cases, we're detaining refugees. Um, and then there were litigation about the conditions, how the children were treated, and that won. So every time there was a major legal battle, it's kind of like this travel ban thing, we would win. And then it just kept changing. And you, you get this, we went from $100,000 bond, I think was the max, down to sometimes $1,500 bonds and $3,000 bonds. So all of a sudden the women were getting out. By the end, like by the time I left the project last year, usually a, a woman and child wouldn't stay there for more than a week or so. So it just, everything started getting streamlined as more litigation was pushing back on the government. And that's just all people, just pro bono volunteer work. So it was nice to have the right skill set for that time. And what's happening here, like I mentioned before, locally um, the ACLU is kind of working on something similar in this area and it was, I felt fortunate to have that, the skill set as an immigration attorney but also having just been through that experience because when I wasn't on the ground I was a manager of the, of the offsite teams and so now here locally we have a team, we're calling it the bond team and it's, and it's very similar. We have all these attorneys who are volunteers and they want to cycle through and learn immigration law and fight these cases. And they're showing up in court. And I'm you know, kind of guiding them through it. And it's, it's just been an awesome experience because a lot of these people would never have any defense. They go through, and like the judge uh, this morning down in Hartford, you know, we were down there for a case today. And there were, I think he said there were seven more cases that day. There was only one other attorney. So I know what happened to the other six. And, so, do you, right? I mean, it's, I mean, if there's no lawyer there, just, they, just, they don't stand a chance. So, I'm sorry. No, he's just got his hand up. <laughs> is this
3: law work pro bono? Or do we have a schedule for fees? for also
2: kind of important? Well, um, I mean, I, I work at a, at a law firm and we then we do charge for our services, but this is a pro bono project that I'm describing. So we have it's called the Immigrant Protection Project of Western Massachusetts. It's been live for about uh, a couple of months now. And there's a few different components. First, we have a, a call center. So from 3 to 7, five days a week, any immigrant can call the center. And we're trying to make sure we're networked with all the different service providers. So, and there's volunteers who are trained, uh, bilingual, to answer the phones. And so at least, if immigrants need help, they have a central place they can go to, and we can hook them up with the right, the right person. Sometimes the right person is a paid lawyer, unfortunately, because there aren't enough resources. Now, if someone is detained, that is when our bond team comes in. So all of the lawyers on this bond team are regular lawyers doing regular paid work. But right now, for this, they are doing this work pro bono. So they're taking these cases for free. And my work with that project is also pro bono. Um, and then there's another team that's working on family aspect of immigration law. And then we have another team developing that's more focused on impact litigation. How do we sue the government? When do we sue the government? We're watching how they're picking people up. We've started seeing ICE uh, picking people up, leaving school, dropping their kids off at school and walking away, and ICE picking them up. So we're trying to figure out litigation strategies for that. And so all that, those projects are pro bono. But my regular job is not. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I hope I have both cards. Because one is for the Immigrant Protection Project that anyone can call and get referred to. And then I have uh, my cards too, which I'll have out if anyone would like them. Do you have IPP cards? This is Alex. He's one of the bond volunteers. (laughs) He's actually the first volunteer in the project, and now has worked on like over 10 cases pro bono in the past two months. So yeah. Not only that, you you got he he got a couple of people out of jail. You got a 19-year-old kid in Boston. Where where's he from? He's from Mexico. Oh uh, yes. Yeah, he's from Mexico, and he just did not stand a chance. <laughs> there was just no way he was going to get out on bond, and he was this 19-year-old kid, and and nobody would have taken the time. But we, you know, our team, um, uh, myself, Alex, and then there was another attorney, and we were up, I think, till two in the morning, like the night before the hearing, still looking through the file and figuring out the arguments. And then he went in at 5 in the morning to go argue the case in Boston. And by miracle, he got this kid out on a $12,000 bond, which was miraculous givens. There were some other, there were some concerning things in the case, but nothing that we thought would be for this 19-year-old kid who's never had a chance and has been basically homeless most of his time in the United States, ended up here fleeing gang violence. Uh, He was living in his, no, he wasn't from Mexico, because he was from El Salvador. That's right, because he, hi- he was in hiding for two years from the gangs after they went after his brother. So just been through everything, and to get him out. And actually, this was, this was pretty exciting, because Alex got the bond for $12,000, but then we didn't have the money. So then, and, we, and we took this case because a, a nonprofit in New York had begged us to take it, because they had been taking care of him, and they were his lawyers. But he left and wandered up to Boston, and so they couldn't get up there. And so they were desperately trying to get our help, because they loved him. And so then we had this problem where nobody had the money. He was homeless. So $12,000, we had to, to somehow raise it. So uh, the, the director of the ACLU out here, he said, well, I think I can get some money, but I, don't, I can't get all of it. And so we, we kind of had this discussion where New York would try to get half, we would try to get half. And somehow Bill Newman managed to get his 6000 and we were getting right down to the wire, because we had, a two, week, we had two weeks after the, that decision. And we were really getting down to it. I was actually on vacation. I was in Hawaii. But I was still talking to them on the phone and trying to arrange this. And, and then in New York, they had to do crowdfunding to get their money. And they couldn't do it legally with the program. So they had to find an outside person to start a crowdfunding thing and get their money. And so finally, they got their 6000 But we needed somebody to post the bond <laughs> down in Hartford. So the third attorney in our team, meanwhile, I'm just in Hawaii calling everybody and telling them what to do. So, so he goes down in the morning on this Monday and posts the bond. He's there for maybe three hours. Uh, and actually, that was the day of his follow-up hearing. So Meanwhile, Alex went to Boston, told the judge, we've got this. We're going to get him out today. Then Alex had to go to Burlington, Mass, which is where the ICE Center is, to wait for him to actually be taken from the jail and dropped off in Burlington. And of course, the kid's homeless with no money. So at that point, you know, Nikos finally gets him out on, down in Hartford, finally pays the bond, finally goes through. They finally bring the kid to Burlington. Alex takes him in his car and drives him all the way to the bus station in Springfield, because I had the bus schedules, and buys him uh, lunch <laughs> and puts him on the bus. And meanwhile, I've got the New York people standing by waiting to pick him up, and they've got him booked into a shelter for that night, which they had been scrambling to get to. So, and it was like my favorite part of the story was because, and, and the time difference was such that I'm just you know, sitting on this balcony in Hawaii, just like, what's happening, what's happening? But he, he got, he put him on the bus, and then he said, that the other lawyer on our team, said at the very last minute he found out, he's like, oh, he, he's getting on the bus, and he came running to the bus station just to get to see this kid one last time, and give him, a, just as he was about to get on the bus, he ran up and gave him a huge hug, and then they both waved him off. And Alex doesn't speak Spanish, so. It was a, it was a, <laughs> <laughs> and the kid doesn't speak English. What is the criteria to accept somebody pro bono?
4: Do you accept somebody who is not in this area? Somebody who is not in the
3: uh
2: Well, right now the project is just accepting detainees. That's what we can handle, detainees, uh, pro bono. So if you have somebody who's, and it's good for this to get out there because, yeah, it's not just here. We've been expanding to, well, Boston, and people as far south as, you know, kind of Stanford area of of Connecticut uh, because that's who's showing up and needing us. But this project is limited in scope, and it's just to get people out of jail, if we can get them out of jail. Beyond that, they need to find another lawyer at this point or do something else. Uh, But our goal is to just get them free, and that's the project. Yes.
3: Um, You know, uh, just to, uh, I'm going to go back a little bit of some of what um, um, Megan was sharing, and it's the fact that um, a lot of, you know, when the refugee crisis uh, was happening uh, with the Central American kids coming uh, to the United States. Um, this happened under under the Obama administration, right? This happened under his watch. You know, three million people were deported under his watch. Sally Yates was out there fighting to keep children in, yells, in, yeah, in jail. And you know, it, it's it's all of this. All of this. It just hits me because a lot of people never thinks about this, right? You know. Um, or that we don't want to think about it, but this has been happening for quite a few years now, and it's just hitting, you know, a, a very a nasty point today. Um, but I think that um, at the same time is 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 that that conversation that I've had with friends, where where we say, you know, said, are we? Um, do we feel? How do we feel that Donald Trump is not the president? Because maybe if Hillary had been the president. You know, the same things would have continued to happen without the same grassroots organizing that we have today. So I think that it was—it has been a very difficult. It been, How do I? How do we describe it? Usually, um, a moment—a moment of ambivalence when we think about it. You know, when we think it's good, but at the same time, we. We feel that you know, we feel hurt for our communities, that this has to happen in order for us and so many other communities to take action. Um, but, but yes, you know that, that was one point that, that I always it always really gets me, you know that, that this is nothing new. You know we've been dealing with this for a long time. I as an undocumented immigrant. I know good and well that all of my neighbors and my friends, we've been struggling with this for, for the past you know. Since I came to the United States, for one, and previous to that, you know, the 11 million undocumented immigrants—they've been dealing with this for decades. Um, And so now, you know, to speak about you know some of the things that I've been invested on is, is uh, more recently we had um, uh, the sanctuary city uh, um, project here in in Amherst Town, and I worked really really hard um, through finals. And uh, you know, just collaborating with so many great people in Amherst to make you know Amherst a sanctuary city. Um, that I'm happy to report that you know that happened with like overwhelming support. I think it was the 196 votes uh, for it. It was about two against, and it was about two abstentions. So that was really amazing to see. Um, it was just an overwhelming you know um, amount of support. Um, and, and I was really happy to be part of that, of that work.
0: After the panel, there was a Q&A session where the attending public had the opportunity to ask questions and some of them were about how people can get information about immigrants' rights and the legislation needed in Massachusetts to provide education opportunities for immigrants. This was a special feature of Radioplasma featuring Journeys Home, Perspectives on Immigration. This event is part of the celebrations of June, Immigrant Heritage Month, celebrated in the city of Holyoke. For Radioplasma in Holyoke, Massachusetts, I'm Johan Rashi Vega.